0: Welcome to the 150th episode of Reverse Rock Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 28 years to the day since an epic duel between Michael Atherton and Courtney Walsh at Sabina Park. Atherton eventually fell for 28, but had earned the admiration of all for his resistance in the face of a fearsome spell. Welcome to the podcast that would always
1: take a battling twenty-eight. So it's our one hundred fiftieth episode. Um, I've always felt that one fifty is not much of a milestone. Once you've reached your century, I don't think the fifties really, really count, do they? I mean, you're just kind of checking it off on your way to two hundred, aren't you? That's a bit presumptuous, I suppose.
0: I always think what's impressive is the fact that you haven't got out in the low hundreds. I mean, I've I've not got yeah. there yet, and I'm going to keep saying yet. But I imagine that the sheer relief of the whole thing for, for most mere mortals means that you don't last last too long after that.
1: I mean, the number of batsmen that get out one hundred and three, one hundred and four, you know, exactly as you say, you get over the over the over the milestone, let your hair down, and then hole out to you know, long on to a to a full toss from the part time bowler. Um, again, hasn't happened to either of us, but maybe that's because you know we're just just too good to do that um so in this episode uh we're going to be we're going to be talking uh Marnus labishane um we're going to be talking i think my my greatest ever moment on a cricket pitch and it doesn't involve scoring a century or 150 runs spoiler alert um and he's going to be talking to us about the fascinating story of the longest uh successive run of maiden overs that's right isn't it? it's the longest successive run in, in test cricket and we are going to be uh reviewing the new documentary shane you can guess who that's about um andy manas labashane
0: so manas labashane's tweet reads playing around with recreating spin, spinning conditions in the backyard which does not go close to doing his ingenuity justice in this little video he takes a large piece of rubber matting tapes lots of small aluminium sheets to it now, this seems like a sort of pointless act of DIY, but this is all about preparation for the t- Australia tour of Pakistan. The plan is a simple one, or simple-ish. If the ball hits the aluminium, it will skid. If it hits the matting, it will spin. Now, you really need to dig out the vi- video to truly oh, appreciate it. Oh, so it's
1: this. not completely covered in aluminium. It's just got little spots here and there, so it's kind of completely random whether it hits it or not.
0: Exactly, lots, yeah. of, little, lots of little spots. Yeah. Um, taped down I think this uh, madcap experiment underlines Labochain's status as perhaps the great obsessive amongst today's batsmen it's become a bit of a running joke both within the Australian team and more broadly uh, quite how obsessed he is with the game But there's also something so gloriously DIY about it. We have this era now of endless performance analysts, which we're all very happy about. But there is something lovely to see a batsman messing around on what is supposed to be sort of his holiday, um, messing around with rolls of tape and bits of aluminium to try to prepare for Pakistan.
1: I mean, we're all familiar with the kind of Don Bradman myth of the um, of the stump and the golf ball and the kind of water tank. And you sort of, when you think of that myth, I think in the back of our heads, we have, oh, well, that was kind of, you know, the Depression era. Well, it was earlier than the Depression era, but the early 20th century. So, of course, there weren't proper facilities and you had to make things up as you went along. Whereas with Labuschagne, you assume that he could just go into, you know, the Cricket Australia high-performance centre and have some, you know, incredibly technological system to do exactly this kind of thing. And it's not often that you get this kind of almost whimsy to actually create something in your own backyard for this kind of condition. We saw a bit of it through COVID where there was that um, string of uh, Twitter videos of um, cricketers like spinning balls and and stuff. Do you remember those kind of videos at Mm -hmm. home that various cricketers made? But as you say, it's great to to actually see um, someone doing something quite so homemade in an era where everything is so, you know, so intentional. I think it's been viewed about
0: 800,000 times already. And it's prompted quite a fun discussion on Twitter about how effective it is. So there are quite a few people making the point, well, actually, what you need to be practising is watching the ball out of the hand. That's what will mm. stand you in good stead. And then lots of people countering and saying, well, no, it being able to react on quickly the pitch. Off, the piece, yep. off the pitch exactly, is Well, I wonder really
1: what it is about well. aluminium that makes the ball... So if it's the aluminium, then it... Um then it skids skids right okay because it's shiny so it doesn't grip whereas on the matting it oh yeah okay i had that the other way around in my in my head but that makes um that makes perfect sense
0: I wouldn't be surprised to see him patenting this and selling it worldwide, the Labashane spin <laughs> matting. Now, from one world-class batsman to our very own world-class wicketkeeper.
1: So I am occasionally forced to keep wicket in our Sunday side, and it's not because I have any skill whatsoever when it comes to keeping wicket. It's because I can't bowl and no one else wants to keep wicket, which is often the way that you know keepers are, are selected in, in l- lower-grade club club cricket. Um I have some days where I feel relatively confident and other days when I feel hopeless, but generally I kind of gauge my um, how how well I'm succeeding by not being noticed. If I'm not noticed as I'm keeping wicket, I feel really happy and I feel that that's a success. Just being solid and just catching the ball as it comes through is enough. So um, this Sunday we were getting a bit of a, bit of a pounding um, against a very good batting side and this guy came to the crease um, and the second ball or something um, to a quickish delivery outside off stump he played a kind of reverse slog sweep um, and absolutely nailed it through the kind of vacant four slip area straight down to the down to the boundary it was kind of just absolutely meddled it one bounce four and we were all sort of standing there going okay here's this guy who clearly shouldn't be playing in this in this league he's clearly far too good but i kind of thought well if he's going to play that shot and it's as premeditated as that maybe maybe here's a little a little opening and so a couple of balls later he decided to replay that shot he got into position to play the slog the slog reverse sweep and so I threw caution to the wind and I just started running towards the towards the slip cordon. And and sure enough he didn't get quite as much on it. And it kind of you know, it went pretty quickly, but it sort of looped up and I ended up taking a, a diving catch at what in recollection feels like kind of gully or point, but in reality was sort of fifth fifth slip. And um, the team was kind of, you know, it was a sort of fairly cock-a-hoop moment to get a get a batsman this this good out. But for me, the kind of significance of it was that moment when you come up with a plan and execute a plan, which I've never been able to do on a cricket pitch. You know, if something good happens to me, if I hit a beautiful, you know, cover drive or a hook shot, it's because I just happen to time it well in that, in that ball. It's not because I've decided this is my plan to that. You know to this particular bowler and I've always thought that's something that sets aside the kind of rank amateur from someone who slightly knows what they're doing being able to come up with a plan and execute it and I think this is my first ever time on a cricket pitch where I've kind of certainly as a keeper that I've kind of managed to um Managed to do that. Now, I'm not by by saying this. I'm not saying that I've suddenly, you know, kind of graduated into the realms of being a decent keeper. I will never do it again, and I will keep on dropping just simple balls that come through to the come through to the keeper. But for that moment, I have to say it was pretty pretty euphoric.
0: It's one of the things that keeps all of us village cricketers alive is you have just enough of those moments to keep mm. the hope alive. But I think there there's a serious point about keeping there, which is I I remember watching Matt Pryor talk about this in the ashes when sadly Josh Butler was going through um a tricky patch and making the point it was all in the foot movement. You know, we, yes. we sometimes obsess, and yes, there are wicket keepers, you know, the Ben folks of this world who have wonderful gloves, your glove work, but so much of this comes from good foot. Getting movement. in the right <laughs> position. Yeah quiet and it's anticipation I have to say your story reminded me of a lovely club incident I witnessed which was I mean for a start no one should be reverse sweeping or reverse log sweeping from ball two that is just an act it's kind of offensive yeah and, and I it's remember cocky. um it's so cocky and I remember a player reverse sweeping it in a village game that I was playing at miscuing it and getting caught by our keeper and our keeper was so offended by the reverse sweep that despite being generally a very mild mannered man gave this guy a really angry send off which was which was rather lovely it was just the reverse sweep was not considered within the spirit of the game.
1: from the archives now on reverse prepped radio we like a maiden over as much as we like anything and in this episode andy is going to be telling us um but well, he's going to be taking us back to january 1964 and the longest run of maidens ever in a test match
0: so we're in chennai and it's the third day of the first test between india and england Ramesh Chandra Gangaram Nadkhani, known as Bapu, runs into bowl and Ken Barrington drives to mid on who misfields, and the Englishmen scramble through for a single. All very sedate, all very unremarkable. Except Nadkhani has just bowled 131 consecutive dot balls. To this day, no one has bowled more successive maidens in Test cricket history.
1: OK, okay. so... Um when yesterday you told me that you were going to be doing a feature on the longest spell of maiden overs ever in test cricket and last night when i couldn't sleep i was thinking to myself when what were the circumstances under which this could happen and i was thinking oh maybe it was len Hutton's side during the 1950s so i was only you know a few years off but i was also thinking to myself you would need to be in a position where both the fielding side and the batting side were content not to score any runs, because if you had a, you know an attacking bowling lineup, there are going to be edges you know flying off, and them, you know will be wickets. And you also obviously need the batsmen to be content to dead ball it. So I'm absolutely fascinated to hear the circumstances under which 131 dot balls were bowled.
0: Well, as as will soon become clear, it was a pretty extraordinarily fortuitous set of circumstances on both sides. It started with a set of circumstances that we're all very familiar with, England in trouble. India had declared 4.57 for seven, and England was suffering from food poisoning, or what the Times rather wonderfully described as internal misfortunes.
1: That could be, you know, that could be just trouble trouble in the dressing room for falling out with your coach. It could be anything. It's a wonderful euphemism, isn't it?
0: It's well, Yes, it could cover so many sins. So Fred Titmuss and Barry Knight were unwell, but they were at least at the ground. Jim Parks and Mickey Stewart were in bed at the hotel, but with a car waiting outside to bring them to the ground if needed. <laughs> With England just into three figures and three wickets down Ken Barrington and Brian Bolas decided to dig in to try to give their teammates the chance to recover and they were the perfect men for the occasion Wisden describes them as the two of the most obdurate batsmen England had ever produced and boy did they dig in we got just 27 lun- runs between lunch and tea and the pair almost got to the close of play on the third day but Bolus fell LBW just before stumps Henry Blofeld, writing in The Guardian, declared that the end must be said to justify the means.
1: It's it's an interesting, um, you know, situation where you are willing as a test side to, uh, you know, just to dig in and to score that slowly. Because, yes, there's something about waiting for your teammates to recover. Although, realistically, we all know that with some of those kinds of uh, internal troubles, as we now call them, you know, it can take days. But at the same time, you know, nowadays, would a side actually be content to say we are just going to kind of give up on this on any prospect of winning this test match to the extent of just on day two to sit in and, you know, just pat back dot balls in this way.
0: Well, it was an interesting strategy, but it seems to have sort of worked in that actually the England team seemed to be mostly better by the fourth day. So they they, they, they had mostly got their, uh, got their stomachs back. Um, But I think focusing on the England batsman runs the risk that this record is all about uh, a lack of batting intent. Um, And Nad Carney deserves his credit here as well. He was infamously stingy, so in terms of bowling style, he would fire the ball in flat, so not a kind of classic loopy spinner. And it's the sort of style that we're now very used to seeing in limited overs cricket when a spin bowler is trying to keep things tight. He described his pro- approach as to be accurate to the point of perfection. I like the fact that in an interview many years later, he grumbled that modern Test cricket had lost its intensity, uh, presumably disappointed by the lack of maidens. Yeah, exactly, um, too many runs and being scored. Ex- ex- yeah, and he also felt that bowlers had to remember to get the basics right. Um this extraordinary spell contributed to a test economy rate of just 1.67, which <laughs> remains the second lowest in test history. Uh, now Nadkarni was taken off the moment after he had conceded the single, which depending on your point of view, is either a tough bit of captaincy from the Nawab of Patodi, or he was giving his spinner a well-earned rest. England were then dismissed for 317 relatively early on the following day and Nadkhani would remarkably finish wicketless, his figures reading 0 for 5
1: of 32 overs. It is interesting to think about um, that idea of his bowling style and how it leads to um, maidens because, you know, it used to be the situation where you would see when you could pad away without playing a shot outside leg stump with you know with impunity um that you know if you could get to an impasse where bowlers would just carry on bowling it outside leg stump and batsmen would just carry on you know padding it away padding it away padding it away um but it sounds like that wasn't quite the case here that it was kind of genuinely rather than just being out and out defensive bowling it was actually just genuinely accurate bowling that was just hard to mm. get away against batsmen who were happy just to you know just to defend it back
0: so I think it was accurate, although the reports also do suggest that even when there was the odd bad ball, either from Nakani or his partners, there they was still very it on. little interest. Yep, yep. Exactly, so half-volleys were still treated with uh, unmerited it's respect. a forgiving position, yeah. <laughs> so what must it have been like to watch this spell so Andy Bull uh, writing The Guardian and remembering Carney, makes the case that the boredom is part of the pleasure what would the good bits be without all those lovely lulls when the game drifts like dust in a sunbeam but I'm not sure I agree. I don't think a spell this strange with such single-minded sportsmen really could be boring. I don't know what what would your take be?
1: I think it's it. It, it gets to this point where the you know in some spells of cricket you kind of are waiting for the wicked or the four or the six or you know the kind of big shot whereas Mm -hmm. here this kind of fixation on we're in this groove of dot balls and what's going to happen next ball that becomes its own kind of sense of um expectation uh in and of itself so i think that would have been something really compelling as much as anything about you know once you've had a few overs of dot balls coming down you know that it's starting to play on the batsman's mind, it's starting to play on the bowler's mind, even if they're not looking, even if the batsmen aren't looking to score exactly what's going to come next. So I think it's a really, really interesting kind of psychological you know, question as much as anything.
0: And just something that so rarely arises in the game to have two batsmen who are great at defending with something to defend, Against a bowler who was you know, notoriously a kind of master master yep. of economy, yep. um, the rest of the games sort of was d- d- despite that slow passage of play, that slow day of play. What was actually pretty interesting: uh, India got into trouble in their second innings, but eventually declared on 152 for nine, setting England 293 to win. And in England, now much in much better health actually promoted a couple of their more aggressive batsmen up the order and had a real go at the chase but when wickets fell they did eventually settle for a draw this rather set the tone for a pretty uh, a pretty odd series all five of the tests were drawn it didn't put off the Indian crowds though we had one million spectators coming to the ten games on the tour that was five tests and five tour games the most watch maidens that ever were bold it was pretty extraordinary um now I came across this story in an obituary to Nadkarni in Wisden. He passed away in January 2020, um, and there was a line in his obituary that, that seems to have summed up his character very, very well, which was the fact that his favourite saying was in Hindi "Chodo mat" or "Hang in there." <laughs> To the review, and for this episode we've been watching the new documentary Shane, the King of Spin. It was released in January this year and is now out on digital platforms including iTunes and Google Play. It was directed by David Ulrich, John Kerry and Jackie Munro. And not surprisingly from that title, it is a bio of Shane Warne. And we see plenty of him, not surprisingly, in the film, both as interviewee and as uh, subject of discussion. How does he come across in his sort of many, many minutes on, on camera?
1: Well, it is it is kind of uh, very much the authorised, uh, the authorised biography. Um, there are, as you say, quite a lot of interviews uh, with him. And it's interesting to hear him kind of speaking at his ease, very much in kind of reflective mode, looking back on what was, as we know, quite a tumultuous career, but kind of with the benefit of hindsight. He doesn't get that sort of emotionally involved in it there's not a real sense that he's trying to you know set his critics to rights or anything like that he's quite a kind of diplomatic reasoned interview candidate throughout the throughout the whole thing um having said that he is not um at any point really sort of put under the microscope again it's very much an authorized um an authorized uh, uh, history and you get the sense that his um the questions and the themes that were put to him would have gone through a number of pr people before they got to him and that this this was quite kind of quite carefully constructed in such a way as to tell his story in the way that he, he wanted to tell it. I did enjoy, you know, those some moments where he was quite kind of frank and upfront about the fact that a lot of what he did as a bowler was frankly showmanship, you know, to hear him talking about the fact that he, when he went out on the pitch, was really fixed on the idea of the psychological battle and that he would move, you know, just to create the illusion of something happening he would move a af- field of one meter in one direction and then another meter back in the other direction and it was interesting to hear him reflecting on that sense of how he kind of created worn the um worn the the, the phenomenon i suppose did you feel like you learned a lot new from kind of hearing from him in this documentary
0: he's certainly honest you get the sense that it's sort of it's kind of therapy almost at times with the camera but I mean I I agree with your point that it's it lacks that rigor that a good interview has and I think of the really good documentaries and the really good interviews and it does have an element of the subject being put under scrutiny and being forced to you know really think and this format doesn't do that and I think it's a thing that all of these documentary makers need to think about which is when you trade access for control you do lose something um and maybe the view is that the trade-off is right because you know x hundred thousand people a million people will always want to watch a film about shane warne but um some, something is ultimately lost i thought he was very honest talking about the sacrifice in terms of family that was that was sort of a, a a sort of a good moment i i completely agree with you about the showmanship i thought it was a shame the film didn't cover one of my all-time favorite things about shane warne and i should say i've always been a big big shane warne fan um the made-up balls you know before every series mm. there would be you know i've been working on I've my new triple this. flipper yeah, dipper yeah, and yeah. stuff and yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what about so so i guess getting a bit more into him as a as a cricketer um was there sort of anything specifically on that side so we've got the showmanship but what about sort of worn the leg spinner
1: There, I mean, (laughs) there's an interesting uh, moment where he does a quick demonstration of all of his, the wrist positions for all of his various balls, which is, you know, kind of a 10 second segment, obviously designed not too much to scare the general viewer where he kind of works his way through the nine or 10 variations he has. That's kind of that and uh, I can't remember who it is. Uh, maybe it's Dave, you know, David Lloyd who talks about the fact that as a leg spinner the ball has to go up before it comes down. That's about as much as we get in terms mm. of the actual mechanics of Warren's bowling and the insights into actually what made him special so as a bowler.
0: It won't astonish uh, any of our listeners to hear this given where, where we come from as a cricket podcast. But you know, I would have liked more cricket and I, I wonder, yep. I find it odd given that ultimately this film surely appeals overwhelmingly to cricket enthusiasts the maker's fear of sort of engaging with the real complexity of the game, barring as you say the very odd moment um, I think it feels disappointing
1: one, one demonstration of this for me was that um, they have a, a pretty stellar lineup of um, interview uh, candidates, um, including Sachin Tendulkar. Sachin Tendulkar's longest interview segment is telling a story about how Shane Warne came around to his house and didn't want to offend anyone by not eating the spicy food and so kept on giving it to his next door neighbour. That is the longest that we hear from Sachin Tendulkar on the legacy of Shane Warne in this, in this definitive story about the world's greatest leg spinner. And you kind of think, hang on, come on, if really, if we're going to get Sachs and we're talking about Shane Warren, surely there's something more interesting and kind of to the point that we can have about this. And I think ultimately what this film is designed to do is to reinforce that narrative about Shane Warren as the kind of larrikin kid who, you know, couldn't quite make his way in, you know, in AFL or in tennis and so turned to cricket and then he came good through knowing Terry Jenner and it's this kind of rags to riches, kind of almost overcoming adversity kind of story um you know the person with the with the sort of failed personal life who managed to redeem himself on the cricket pitch and and don't we love him and everything is focused on telling that story Mm. and therefore there's no kind of room for surprise here and sadly that story has been told so many times and we know it so much yeah that you wonder why we need to hear it again
0: Well, if you really want to know the Shane Warne story, uh, a book that we've previously reviewed on this podcast, On Warne by Gideon Hay, which is completely extraordinary. And I know it can be a little bit unfair to compare a 90-minute film with a a book, but but there you go. We've talked a bit about what the film covers and doesn't cover. I think we have to talk a little bit about how it does it. Um, the staged footage drove me mad. Um, I really don't know if we need to see him and his brother forced to have a very awkward AFL kick around. Um, yeah, they're non really actors. Not sure are they? It's awkward watching them know, kind of
1: simulate um, enthusiasm. Yeah. Or, or possibly even worse,
0: staging the scene of him in his hotel room after the first sort of sex <laughs> scandal had broken. I, again, I don't know why we needed that, particularly when there are buckets of wonderful archive
1: footage to yep. be shown. So w- why don't we get into that? Um, but I'm hearing, not, from Ed Sch- her- hearing from Ed Sheeran, <laughs> though, that was a real um, Ed Sheeran and the guy from um, uh, what's Coldplay. he called, Chris God Martin, Chris Martin, who just have. Z- z- that, like literally, the most substantial thing that Ed Sheeran says in this film is that it's amazing that a spin bowler lands the ball in one place and then it ends up in another place. That that is yeah. the substance of what he says at any point and you kind of think well obviously his name looks good on the poster and it shows what audience they're trying to appeal to now having said all this maybe we are being deeply snobby we know this you know we know the shame one story because we are very attached to it maybe this is an opportunity maybe we forget that there is a whole generation of people coming through who don't know the shame one story you know maybe there are people who were born after well not were born after shame one retired they'd be what seven years old now but you know but didn't live through it in the same way and maybe this maybe this is a important Documentary in that sense for those generations to come to understand what the Shane One thing is.
0: No, I, I think that's a really fair point, and you know, <laughs> I have to concede that you know Amazon and these other documentary makers. I'm sure that from a commercial point, they know what they're doing. You know, uh, and maybe they just we need do...
1: films, so they don't mind retelling the same story right. over and over again. You know, particularly when and, you can get Ed Sheeran to retell it.
0: Yeah, no, no, and you, you know, it zipped along. It zipped along well, and it did tell the story, but. I think what I would say is what we've seen with the streaming services with the money that's poured into them is we have actually seen some really good documentaries I mean the streaming mm-hmm. service has been phenomenally good for documentary makers, it's given them funds and an audience, That there's this rather odd phenomenon that we don't go to the cinema to see documentaries but we do stream them mm-hmm. as a public in big numbers which is uh, as a result the streaming service has been great and it just feels a little like a missed opportunity, I can't for example think that people will be talking about this film in years to come in a way that maybe they will be talking about something like fire in babylon which we you know we reviewed um a few years ago and it's it's just about i guess different types of ambition but i agree different types of audience as well
1: so basically i think we would if you have never heard of shane warne we would heartily recommend this film if you have heard of shane warne we would suggest that um i don't know what we'd suggest Probably reading Gideon Haig's book and then getting on with your life already. Um, so um, anyway, so that is that is um, Shane, the king of uh, spin, out now on all all good digital platforms, as as Andy said. And that was the 150th episode of uh, Reverse Swept Radio. We will be back to see whether we fall in the early 150s after passing that milestone, or whether we can plow on towards new horizons. THE END